Last week, as we looked at First Kings, we came to the end of Solomon's reign over Israel. And we said, in many ways, it had been a glorious reign. It was a time of prosperity. It was a time when Israel often was blessed by Solomon's God-given wisdom. In fact, it was a time when world leaders came seeking Solomon's wisdom. But we also saw Solomon's reign did not end well. Last time we heard what was going to happen to his kingdom after his reign ended. And more accurately, we heard what God was going to do with Solomon's kingdom. God said, because Solomon has turned away from me to follow other gods, I am going to tear the kingdom away from Solomon. God said, that's what I promised to do if he forsook me. And I'm going to keep my promise. I won't do it during his lifetime. I'll tear it away from his son. And God said, I won't do it completely. Of the 12 tribes of Israel, I will give 10 to a man called Jeroboam. And I'll leave one for Solomon's son. I will do that because of another promise I made. My promise to Solomon's father, David to build an eternal kingdom from David's line. So when you and I read the rest of 1 and 2 Kings, we are not reading a mystery. We don't have to wait until the end to get the punchline of these events. God gives us the punchline early on in this book. Israel is going to be torn apart and I am going to do it. That is the ultimate explanation for what's about to happen in Israel. This is God's judgment on sin. This is the legacy of Solomon's disobedience to God. But this morning we're going to see something else. We're going to see that on the ground the kingdom is torn apart because of the attitudes and the decisions of human beings. God doesn't fire thunderbolts from heaven. Human beings do a great job of messing things up on their own. So turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 12. And as we read this, we're going to see two men tearing up the kingdom. If you're using one of the Blue Church Bibles, it's page 351, I believe, or in the larger print Bibles, page 540. 1 Kings 12. The last verse of chapter 11 told us that Solomon died. He was buried in the city of Jerusalem and Rehoboam, his son, succeeded him as king. And now we read in chapter 12, verse 1. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, He was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon. He returned from Egypt. So they sent sent for Jeroboam and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us and we will serve you. Rehoboam answered, Go away for three days and then come back to me. So the people went away. 
Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. They replied, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and who were serving him. He asked them, what is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us? The young man who had grown up with him replied, these people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. No, tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam, as the king had said, come back to me in three days. The king answered the people harshly. Rejecting the advice given him by the elders, he followed the advice of the young man and said, My father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people. For this turn of events was from the Lord to fulfill the word the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam son of Nebat through Ahijah the Shilonite. When all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, Israel. Look after your own house, David. So the Israelites went home. But as for the Israelites who were living in the towns of Judah, Rehoboam still ruled over them. King Rehoboam sent out Adoniram, who was in charge of forced labor. But all Israel stoned him to death. King Rehoboam, however, managed to get into his chariot and escape to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. When all the Israelites heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. Only the tribe of Judah remained loyal to the house of David. When Rehoboam arrived in Jerusalem, he mustered all Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 able young men, to go to war against Israel and to regain the kingdom for Rehoboam, son of Solomon. But this word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God. Say to Rehoboam, son of Solomon, king of Judah, to all Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, this is what the Lord says. Do not go up to fight against your brothers, the Israelites. Go home, every one of you, for this is my doing. So they obeyed the word of the Lord and went home again as the Lord had ordered. Then Jeroboam fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. From there he went out and built up Peniel. Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom is now likely to revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, It is too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. 
One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. Jeroboam built shrines on high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. He instituted a festival on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the festival held in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. This he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves he had made. And at Bethel he also installed priests at the high places he had made. On the 15th day of the 8th month, a month of his own choosing, he offered sacrifices on the altar he had built at Bethel. So he instituted the festival for the Israelites and went up to the altar to make offerings. This is God's word. And it focuses on two men. Each of them bear responsibility for tearing up the kingdom of Israel. First of all, the focus here is on Rehoboam. Verse 1 says, Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone there to make him king. Shechem is about 40 miles north of Jerusalem. And we're not told why it was chosen as the place to make Rehoboam king. But presumably he goes there expecting a straightforward ceremony. Just a formality. Then he can go back to Jerusalem and be king in his father's place. But that is not at all how it turns out. The Israelites have not gone to Shechem just to rubber stamp a new king. They want things to change. Last week we were introduced to Jeroboam, son of Nebat. The prophet Ahijah delivered a message from God. And the message was that most of Israel was going to be given to Jeroboam. Solomon, while he was still alive, may well have heard about that because he tried to kill Jeroboam. Jeroboam escaped down to Egypt. Well, now Jeroboam has come back, probably because he heard Solomon was dead. And apparently he has been chosen to act as spokesman for the people. So in front of the crowds, he approaches the new king in waiting and he says in verse 4, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us and we will serve you. We've seen in previous weeks, in the first part of Solomon's reign, the people flourished. Under his rule, we were told, they ate, they drank, and they were happy. Times were good at first. But later, it seems things got harsh and more exacting under Solomon's rule. We don't just have to take the people's word for that. There have been hints of it earlier in Kings. Hence that actually Solomon began to act a bit like the Pharaoh who had oppressed Israel hundreds of years before this. And here the Israelites don't say to Rehoboam, we will not have you as our king. What they say is, lighten this load we've been under and we will serve you. So Rehoboam asks for three days to think about it and he gets some really good advice from the older man who had worked with his father. They recognize the people have a point. And so they advise Rehoboam in verse 7, if today you will be a servant to these people 
and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. That's great advice. Rehoboam, they say, be a servant king. Don't lord it over your people. Don't exploit them for your own ends. Work for their good and they will be loyal to you. This is what God intended kingship to be. When God spoke about leaders, he chose to use the word shepherd. In fact, God said, that is what I am to my people. I tend them like a shepherd with his flock, gathering the lambs in my arms, carrying them close to my heart, gently leading those that have young. And God said, that is how I want the leaders of my people to be. Not using my people, but working for the good of my people. These older leaders have given Rehoboam good advice. But he rejects it. Verse 8 says, he consulted the young man who had grown up with him. Now Rehoboam at this point is 41 years old. So he's not a boy, and his mates are not boys either. But they have the maturity level of boys. Look at their advice to him in verse 10. The young man who had grown up with him replied, These people have said to you, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them, My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. I said these advisors have the maturity level of boys. And that comes across in what they say here. Our English translations have put it quite politely for us. My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. But actually, they are being crude in what they suggest he should say. Literally, they say, tell the people, my little thing is thicker than my father's loins. I probably don't have to spell out for you what they're referring to. They're talking the way young men talk when they want to assert their manliness. Tell them, you think my dad was a big man? Well, he's nothing compared to me. Get ready, Israel, for some seriously harsh leadership. Rehoboam is a fool. He listens to his mates. He decides that bullying Israel is the way forward. And verse 15 reminds us this is all happening in fulfillment of God's word. But it's also happening because this is what Rehoboam wants to do. And verse 16 gives us the outcome. When all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, Israel. Look after your own house, David. So the Israelites went home. But as for the Israelites who were living in the towns of Judah, Rehoboam still ruled over them. David was Rehoboam's grandfather. And what the Israelites are saying here is, down with David and his dynasty. We're going our own way from now on. And what that means in practice is that the ten northern tribes reject Rehoboam, but the large southern tribe of Judah remains with him. 
And we'll see it a bit later. The little tribe of Benjamin is considered part of Judah at this point. So if we look on the map, this northern part of Israel has now broken away. And Rehoboam is left with this southern part. One commentator says, pig-headedness split a kingdom. Rehoboam and his mates probably had a great laugh planning his speech. The big, crude talk that was going to put those Israelites back in their place. But it's not so funny anymore. And yet Rehoboam doesn't seem to grasp, even yet, how serious this is. He still thinks he can bring the Israelites back in line. So as the people are dispersing, he sends out this, sends out this man, Adoniram. He was the official who had organized the forced labor under King Solomon. Rehoboam thinks, surely he can fix this. He knows what to do with these people. But we're told the people stone Adoniram to death. They're not going to be brought back in line. And Rehoboam himself just about makes it back to Jerusalem alive. What we've seen in these verses is that Israel is torn apart because Rehoboam tried to use others instead of serving them. And even if that approach sometimes seems to work for a while, in the end, it tears things apart. That's true when it comes to leaders, ancient or modern, and it's true for you and me as well. When you and I try to use other people instead of serving them, it will eventually tear up our relationships. It will destroy what others have built. And it will leave us in the end with less than we started with. Rehoboam was a fool. We can all see that. We would never be so blatant about it as he was. But all of us are prone to try and use other people as if they're rungs on a ladder. All of us are tempted to stand on others to get ourselves up a bit higher. It might be with our words, it might be with our actions, but we're all prone to try it. The Old Testament shows us again and again humanity is split apart because humanity is deeply selfish. There can be no harmony when we're all trying to use each other for our own ends. What we need, what humanity needs, is a leader who can overcome our selfishness, who can unite us, What we need is a leader who breaks the cycle of selfishness. And the New Testament tells us that leader has come. Speaking about Jesus Christ, Mark's Gospel tells us this. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
Sometimes when we look at the kings of Israel in the Old Testament, we see there a faint reflection of what King Jesus is going to be. Their good characteristics sometimes point us to him. But sometimes the failures of the Old Testament kings show us just how different Jesus would be when he came. And that's what we find here in 1 Kings 12. Rehoboam's way of dealing with his people makes us long for a leader who will give himself for his people. And Jesus literally gave himself. He gave his life as a ransom for us. He died to set us free from our heavy burden of guilt and sin. There is no greater way a king could serve his people. And once we have come to know this king, then he calls us to follow him. We're called in the New Testament to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. What does that mean? It's explained for us. It means do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Isn't that how Jesus served us? Dying so we could be forgiven? And now he's brought us together. People who are so, so different. He calls us to give up our selfish ambitions and be committed to serving one another instead. And when we live that way, looking to him as our example, looking to his Holy Spirit for power, when we're willing to ask forgiveness from one another when we get it wrong, then the church will not be torn apart. It will only get stronger. Its witness will only get brighter. Because this is so different from how things are outside the church. We only have to look at the news to see how rare this is. For men and women to serve others instead of trying to use others. There's another main character in this passage. And he is also a fool. If Rehoboam tried to use others instead of serving them, Jeroboam tried to use God instead of trusting him. Before the text moves on to focus on Jeroboam, it tells us how God intervened to prevent a bloodbath in Israel. We know the kingdom is being divided because of God's judgment. But God is not going to let the north and the south wipe each other out. When Rehoboam gets back to Jerusalem after being rejected in Shechem, he raises his army to try and bring the north to heal. Verse 21 says, His southern army includes 180,000 men from Judah and Benjamin. Notice how the two tribes are linked together and counted as one. We mentioned that earlier. But before Rehoboam can march north, God's prophet Shemaiah comes bringing a word from God. 
And that word from God must have come with so much power and so much authority, no one is willing to argue with it. Through Shemaiah, God says, this division of the kingdom is my doing. In other words, people, this is not something you can fix by having a big fight. So just go home. And they do. Now imagine you are Jeroboam at this point. We haven't heard much from him so far, but last week we heard God's clear promise to give him ten tribes. And now Jeroboam has just received ten tribes without any bloodshed. Because of God's intervention, Rehoboam is not contesting Jeroboam's leadership of the ten tribes. Rehoboam's army has disbanded and gone home. Now given all that, we might think Jeroboam would trust God. God has delivered what he promised. Surely God can be trusted to protect what he's given. Surely God can be trusted to make Jeroboam secure as king of the north. We might think Jeroboam would see it that way, but he doesn't. He starts out by building fortresses for himself, but then look at verse 26. Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom is now likely to revert to the house of David. By that he means Rehoboam. If these people, that's the northern people, go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, which is in Rehoboam's territory, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. So here's how Jeroboam sees the situation. It's all very well me being king of these people today. But Israel still worships the same God in the same way. All of them do. And every year, my northern people are going to make multiple journeys down to the city of Jerusalem for the big worship festivals. All of those center on the temple in Jerusalem. And when the people are there, I just know it. Rehoboam will win their hearts, they'll kill me, and they'll go back to having him as their king. And as Jeroboam thinks about that, and as he thinks along those lines, trusting God's word just seems way too precarious. Jeroboam thinks, yes, God promised me, and yes, he has delivered what he promised, and yes, he told me, If I obeyed him, he would make my kingdom secure. But I think I need to take this into my own hands. Verse 28. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. If there's a line in what we've just read that sounds familiar to any of you, it's because someone in the Bible has said it before. Way back, when God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, he showed his power in amazing ways. 
through ten signs of his power. We know them most commonly as the ten plagues on Egypt. And then God showed his power by parting the Red Sea, leading the Israelites through on dry land. And we might think they would trust God after that. But when God called their leader Moses up Mount Sinai, and when Moses didn't reappear for a while, Moses' brother Aaron made a golden calf. And as he presented the golden calf, he announced to all the people, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Now once you've gone and made your own god, you pretty much make your own rules as well. And so within hours of that, the Israelites were partying like pagans instead of celebrating like God's special freed people. And the whole thing turned into a big mess. Did Jeroboam know about that? Of course he did. But instead of being warned off, because it ended so badly last time, Jeroboam takes inspiration from what Aaron did. Maybe this time it'll be okay. Jeroboam ignores the consequences that came from the previous golden calf. And if you and I think no one today would possibly be that silly, repeating a sin and hoping it will turn out well, here's something I came across just last week. This is from a new book about God written by someone called Reza Aslan. And he says to his readers in the book, take a lesson from Adam and Eve and eat the forbidden fruit. Now that might sound inspirational, but it conveniently ignores the consequences of what Adam and Eve did. The consequences were misery and death. But maybe it'll turn out better this time. What did Jeroboam want to achieve with these golden calves? Well, he wants to satisfy the Israelites with his version of God. So they'll stop going to Jerusalem. He puts the calves in Bethel and Dan, which are both in the northern territory that he controls. And he doesn't stop with the golden calves. Jeroboam goes all out with this. He appoints his own priesthood, we're told. He makes up his own calendar of alternative religious festivals. And the whole thing takes off beautifully. It's a roaring success. But the writer of Kings points out to us in verse 30, it's a sin. All of it disobeys God's commands. God had already said, Don't worship images. That's in Deuteronomy chapter 5. God had already said, worship me at the one place where I choose to put my name. Only bring your sacrifices there. That's Deuteronomy chapter 12. And God said, it's the Levites who are to serve me as priests. That's Deuteronomy chapter 18. Jeroboam rewrites God's instructions. It's important to see Jeroboam is not trying to do away with God. He's trying to use God for his own purposes. 
And so he doesn't say to the Israelites, here are some new gods for you. He says, this is the God who's always been there. This is the same God who brought us out of Egypt and revealed himself to us on Mount Sinai. It's the same God. We are just reimagining him. We're just making him fit our situation a bit better. And if that means ignoring some of his commands, or in fact doing the exact opposite, well surely he won't mind that much. Earlier we saw Rehoboam trying to use the people for his own ends. Now Jeroboam is trying to do that with God. And that makes Jeroboam a fool. All of us can see that. We can see this is just a scheme to stop the Israelites being influenced by Rehoboam when they go to Jerusalem. But what we might find it harder to see is how easily we can end up trying to use God. How might that happen? It happens when you and I start not with what God has said, but with what we want. That's what Jeroboam did. I have to stop these people visiting Jerusalem. I can't allow that. So I'll come up with an alternative way to worship God. For you and me, it might be, I know that my whole life is to be worshipped. And I know that means honoring God with my words and my actions, with my body and my mind. But there are some areas of my life where that just doesn't feel very convenient. Maybe it's to do with honesty. There's some situation where we really don't want to tell the truth. Maybe it's forgiveness. There's someone who's hurt us and we'd prefer just to be better towards them. Maybe it's to do with our lifestyle in some way. We want to do things that God has forbidden. Maybe it's drunkenness. Maybe it's sex outside marriage. Maybe it's ignoring God's design that marriage is between a man and a woman. There are so many different ways we can be reluctant to trust that God can still bring us joy and fulfillment if we will obey him in every area of our lives. Whatever it is, when you and I start off with what we want, instead of starting with what God has said, and trusting what he said, then we're probably not going to admit we're disobeying God. We probably won't deny that we're a Christian, at least not to begin with. Instead, we will find ways to make the Bible say what we want it to say. To do that, we'll probably have to bend it to breaking point. We'll have to ignore chunks of it. But if we're determined enough, we'll come up with some interpretation that supports what we wanted to do in the first place. And when we begin to fall into that, we need to realize what we're really doing. We're trying to use God 
We're not trusting him anymore. We're trying to recreate him. To make him into the God we would like him to be. The God whose plans for us always happen to match the plans we have for ourselves. Isn't that what Jeroboam was doing? When he did the opposite of what God said about images and places of worship and priests. Jeroboam actually invented his own God, but he wouldn't admit it. He announced to the people, here's the God who brought Israel out of Egypt. If you and I ever take that approach, it might seem to work for us for a while. But deep down, we will know we're not really worshipping the living God. We're worshipping a God we've made up. So let's start with the living God. Let's start with what he has said. Let's trust him enough to obey what he has said. Even when we're nervous about it. Even when, dis- when obeying God just doesn't fit with our own desires or plans. Let's trust him anyway. And let's thank God we have a king who obeyed in the most daunting situation of all. The New Testament describes for us what Jesus went through just hours before he died on the cross. We're told that in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus fell to the ground. And this is what he prayed. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. The cup that he's speaking about was the death that was ahead of him. It wasn't going to be a normal death. On the cross, Jesus would be drinking down God's wrath against sin. And here, Jesus asks for that cup to be taken away. And I'm saying this very carefully, but at some level, when he looks at the cross and the absolute horror of it, the separation from his father that's going to be involved, Jesus wants to avoid it in these moments. But that is not what he wants most. The ultimate for Jesus is doing his father's will. Thank God Jesus did his father's will that night. Because he did, you and I today have every reason to trust God. God has dealt with our sin at the cross. And then he raised Jesus from death. So we have every reason to trust our own lives to God. To trust our future to him. He is the God who raises the dead. And today we have a living Savior who promises to be with us to the very end of the age. So when you and I are tempted to try and use other people instead of loving them and serving them, when we're tempted to try and use God instead of trusting him, let's look to our Savior and follow him. 
He is the servant king. He is the one who lived to do his father's will. And his father raised him up to endless joy. That's what the father has in store for us too, if we'll trust him. We're going to respond to him now together as we sing in praise of Jesus and what he has done. From heaven you came, helpless babe.